January 26, 1911, the city of Dresden hosted the premiere of a new opera by Richard Strauss. And a new opera by Richard Strauss was, by this time, a major event. He had already scored two major sensations with Salome and Electra, both violent, discordant, shocking, and for some, obscene. But his new opera could not have been more different. A bittersweet romantic comedy set in old Vienna. The opera, of course, was Der Rosenkavalier, or The Cavalier of the Rose. Nigel Shaw, a renowned oboist who has played in numerous productions, has made an arrangement for winds of Rosenkavalier's highlights. His version should have been performed seven times by now, but a certain virus has put paid to that. Lucky Melburnians will be able to hear this marvellous arrangement when Nick Deutsch leads Anam Musicians in its premiere on April 1st at the Abbotsford Convent. I asked Nigel Shaw about the personal significance of this opera to him and if there are any particular performances which stand out in his memory. I think the Rosenkavalier is special to all oboists actually. It's such a wonderful oboe part to play. And really, the oboe, clarinet and horn are just as much protagonists in the opera as the singers are. I've always loved playing it, but it was a production in Berlin under Kirill Petrenko that opened my eyes to the more intimate chamber music aspect of the piece. Petrenko made it so transparent and delicate, and that was when it first occurred to me that it would make a wonderful wind serenade. I'd already thought of expanding the tradition of writing harmony musique on classical operas to include the larger romantic ones, and then I just realized that the woodwind writing was already there in the opera, from the instrumental solos to the accompaniment and doubling of the voices. The writing was so similar in color to Strauss's own wind serenades that I took their instrumentation as a starting point and went from there. Nigel, there's a lot of music in Rosen Cavalier, over three hours worth. How did you manage the difficult selection process of what to use and what to leave out? I needed to find a balance between the most popular bits of the opera that people would want to hear and the parts that I thought would work well purely instrumentally. And in fact, Strauss made that decision really easy as the key scenes already have such prominent woodwind parts. So I decided to keep the order of the music as it comes in the opera to create a narrative and then chose the scenes that fitted those criteria, worked out how to join them together as far as the tempo and key changes were concerned. I wanted to give each of the three movements a harmonic and tempo structure of their own, as well as making the whole piece work as a kind of chamber symphony. Nigel, COVID's played havoc with so many performances over the last, well, year at least. This arrangement should have been heard a number of times by now, shouldn't it? Actually, the piece has quite a COVID saga attached to its first performance. When I first showed it to Vladimir Yurovsky, who's chief conductor of the Berlin Radio Orchestra, he wanted to premiere it in a benefit concert in June, given by members of all seven Berlin orchestras in aid of the freelance musicians who weren't working due to COVID. That didn't work out, nor did a second benefit concert in September, which was cancelled, and his plan to do it in the Munich Opera this March to accompany the full opera also didn't happen as the theatres closed to the public. Then, Nick Deutsch very kindly planned to do it in the Leipzig Conservatoire in November. That concert was also postponed due to COVID, and the repeat date in December fell through as one of the musicians was rushed into hospital with appendicitis just before the dress rehearsal. So it's really been quite a journey to get to this first performance, and I'm absolutely thrilled that it's happening at the Anam and so grateful to Nick for making it work at last. I'm just very sorry that I can't travel over to be with everybody on the 1st of April. Oboist and arranger Nigel Shaw. We also sat down to talk with Anam's recently departed artistic director and current guest, who will be leading the performance of Rosen Cavalier from the oboe chair, Nick Deutsch.
Hi, Nick. Hi, Phil. Lovely to be here. So, Nick, tell us about the Rosen Cavalier that we are presenting. Well, it's in the tradition of harmonie musique, as we're doing with Figaro, for those who may see that the week prior. There is a tradition to actually arrange operatic works for harmonie besetzung, which is a series of wind players where all the vocal parts as well as the orchestral lines are arranged for the wind instruments. It's sort of a very effective and a very old tradition and it's something that Nigel Shaw did during lockdown. And in fact, this will be the world premiere of that arrangement. So Nigel Shaw is also an oboist and a good friend of yours, I believe. We're going to get back to the oboe later, but let's talk a little bit about the opera first and its genesis. The opera has a libretto by Hugo von Hoffmannsthal, a very erudite man, a superb writer actually, and poet. He wrote several opera librettos for Strauss. This was their second collaboration. The first was Electra. And in 1909, he was told about the plot of a now forgotten French operetta called L'Ingenue Libertine. And he thought the situation in that operetta was just exactly right for his next project with Strauss. The story of a 17-year-old aristocrat who falls in love with an older woman, but then eventually has to choose between her and a younger woman, coincidentally named Sophie. Hoffmannsthal turns this into a, an exceptionally fine libretto. Strauss is delighted with it, so delighted in fact that he starts sketching musical ideas before the libretto is even finished. But the opera turned out to be very different from Strauss's previous two operas, Electra and Salome. Now, Nick, you've played, I think, most of the Strauss operas in opera pits. How do you position this opera musically? It's very much considered by many to be the opera that defines Strauss as a composer. And interestingly enough, you know, when the American troops were liberating Germany and they approached his villa in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, he identified himself to them as Richard Strauss, composer of Der Rosenkavaliers. I don't think it was his favorite opera, but it was definitely one of the operas that he considered to be most significant. I think his favorite opera he wrote in one of the letters was Frau ohne Schatten, which actually didn't receive the same reception from the audience as Rosenkavalier did. But as you mentioned, um, yes, this came after Salome and Lecture that were very, very different operas. In fact, it's, it might be worth mentioning that Rosenkavalier is his fifth opera. He wrote two operas prior to Salome, being Guntram and Feuersnord, that were not really successful musically. I suppose you could say Guntram was successful personally in the fact that he met his wife, Paulina de Anna, who sang the lead role, and they were married till the end of his life for, I think, 54 years approximately. But um, Salome and Electra were very, really blood-stained canvas. Well, they're very violent operas, aren't they? Very, very violent operas. Absolutely outstanding operas, but it was said that after the premiere of Electra, Strauss said, next I'm going to write a Mozart opera. And that's where in, in deliberation with Hoffmannsthal, they were really looking for a text. And I think they actually went through quite a few texts before they settled on one. And I actually think it's a bit of a hybrid of many inspired by Moliere. And I mean, it actually was very much inspired by Figaro as well. Strauss throughout his life was very familiar with the Mozart operas, conducted them very often and was a big fan of Duponte. And we can see many resemblances in the two operas, 
especially in the character of Octavian, what we call sort of a trouser role. And actually, incidentally, I don't know if it's if it's a coincidence, but the opera, the premiere in Dresden was on the 26th of January, which is the eve of Mozart's birthday in 1911. I'm not quite sure if that was a coincidence, but might not be. But it's a very, very different musical language to Salome and Electron. Well, let's talk about the opera itself. It's set in Vienna around 1740, and Hoffmannsthal says that this is a Vienna which is half real, half imaginary. It begins in a luxurious boudoir of the Marshalline, Maria Therese. She's had a passionate night of love with her young lover Octavian, while her neglectful husband is away hunting. So it's a Mozartian setting to begin with, isn't it? But Strauss doesn't really make much reference to the music of the 18th century. He has a bit of harmony music in that scene, which is very charming, 18th century style. But the musical reference which he really goes to is the Viennese waltz which did not exist in 1740. In fact, the sorts of waltzes that Strauss conjures in Rosenkavalier really belong about a hundred years later. And this caused some consternation among musical purists at the time, but I think those waltzes give the opera its charm and were probably the cause of its popularity. What do you think? I'd agree with you there. I mean, as you mentioned, I think both Strauss and Hoffmannsthal, they tried to create a bit of a never-never land, so to speak, like a utopian Vienna. And so it may be set in 1740, but I think it's also important to remember that when they were writing this, you know, the forces behind World War One were already happening and this glorious world of Vienna, which had really been the centre of culture throughout the 19th century, was beginning to fade away. And so much of what they really valued in their life it was about to disappear. And so I, I I don't necessarily think they tried to make it historically accurate, but more sort of like a utopian mix of all the things that they treasured and didn't really regard it in terms of chronology. So uh, yeah, definitely the waltz is, is sort of the glue that puts it all together. And he does sort of dabble into a bit of 18th century pastiche at every opportunity he gets in the first act, of course, when the Marshallin is entertaining, there's that beautiful flute solo and, and the horn, sorry, it's, it's a tenor aria, which of course at Anam will be doing on the horn, which shows us the influence of the 18th century Mozartian style, definitely. First Wiener Schule, as we call it, first Viennese school. I want to talk to you about the Viennese style. People claim that there is a Vienna Klangenstil, a Viennese sound style. Is there such a thing? And if so, what is it? Oh, look, there is absolutely, uh, you know, most certainly a, a Wiener Klangstil. You just need to look at the Vienna Philharmonic or the Vienna Symphonica or Österreichische Rundfunk, which is the radio orchestra in Vienna, to very much see that they are the guardians of this tradition. They even have particular instruments which are unique to Vienna. In Vienna, they play different oboes to the rest of the world, different horns. Uh, the, the bores of the clarinets are different. There's a very, very different string sound. You know, anybody who's watched a New Year's Eve concert of the Vienna Philharmonic will note that immediately. It's an orchestra that is recognizable and very distinct from the others. I'm not entirely sure if that's what Strauss wanted. You know, the fact that the premiere was in Dresden meant that the sound he would have uh, received from the orchestra would have been very different to that. But um, many conductors, you know, notably Carlos Kleiber, definitely try and emulate that sound in their interpretations, the Vienna sound, the lilt, the displacement of the second beat, that kind of thing, which we'll be trying to do it in our performance as well a little. 
I think Nigel Shaw has done an exceptionally fine job in compressing each act. So there are three acts, each about an hour long. He's compressed each down to about 20 minutes, I guess, because the whole wind arrangement plays for an hour. He's done a fantastic job, I think, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, what's it like to play Rosen Cavalier in the pit? Because it's a long play for the orchestra. Oh yes, it's, it's definitely a most virtuosic work. Of course, for me in particular, it's really fantastic opus for oboe. The second act, the Rose Übertragung, you know, when uh, Octavian presents Sophie with a rose, it's an excerpt which we play for many auditions, so it sort of accompanies us for our entire career. An absolute delight to play, very challenging in the pit, but almost even more challenging in this arrangement in the fact that we're not only playing all of our parts, but covering many of the vocal lines and many of the string parts, of course, which are in a wind arrangement, not there. I should point out to listeners that is one of the most famous passages in the opera, isn't it? The presentation of the rose, one of the most magical moments with those magical chords high up in the celeste. Do you ever get nervous playing that passage? It's so famous. My very first Rosenkavalier was in Munich at the Staatsoper for the Opernfestspiel in summer and I didn't have a rehearsal for it. So I prepared as well as I could <laughs> and yeah, I'd have to admit I probably was a little bit nervous but um, you can turn those nerves into something positive. It's a special performance that I'll never forget. All right, before we go, Nick, tell me some other enjoyable performances of this opera that you've taken part in. Oh, I think every single performance I've done is enjoyable. They're all memorable. But uh, of course, I, I remember playing it with Petrenko at the Komische Open Berlin, which was absolutely fantastic. Of course, uh, I played it in Dresden. Munich is very special. Of course, in Munich, there's a tradition. We play it from Kleiber's parts, which I actually brought with me to show the Anna musicians, to show the level of detail that, that he worked on. This is Carlos Kleiber? Yes, yes, Carlos Kleiber. So there's that really famous recording. I think there are two very significant recordings of his. One is with the Bavarian State Opera and the other one is with the Wiener Staatsoper. It's just wonderful to have those parts and just examine sort of that history because he, he definitely left his mark on this piece. I consider that to be one of the most uh, definite recordings left to us. I think every time you play this piece, it's memorable in a celebration. So when people come to hear your performance, they're going to hear the Carlos Kleiber tradition actually being channeled through you. Definitely parts of it. I mean, I think anyone who does know the Kleiber recordings, they're fiendishly fast tempos. The beginning of the third act, very impressive. We'll definitely be going for that lightness. I think you do have to make some sort of concessions when you are playing string parts on winds, but we'll definitely be going in that direction, I can assure you, yes. <laughs> Fantastic, Nick. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing everyone at the performances. <laughs> <laughs>